0: One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Sally, Sally.
1: Heidally, hey, neighborino, and welcome to another episode of YDHTY, the podcast for those who like their politics in colors other than red and blue this is part three in a four part series on political violence in America and what responsibility if any rally organizers should have for instances of violence and damages at their events and last week we spoke with John vile and got into a very interesting conversation about how civil suits could be used as an end run around the Constitution and the First Amendment and, We all know about the $25 million settlement against the organizers of the Unite the Right rally, and we're generally all happy because hopefully we all hate Nazis. Lesser known is the case of DeRay McKesson, a Black Lives Matter organizer who's been the target of a civil suit by a police officer who sustained injuries at a protest he organized. And... To help explain this case and the potential negative repercussions of suits like this, I invited Garrett Epps, professor emeritus at the University of Baltimore School of Law and a former journalist to discuss this case in detail. This is a fascinating conversation that adds a little more detail to the subject. I hope you enjoy it. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. I had mentioned in in my email to you that the big subject we're discussing this month on the podcast is the culpability of rally and event organizers for instances of violence to take place at their events. So, of course, we have the civil case against the Unite the Right rally. We have the anniversary of January 6th attack on the Capitol. And in doing some research, I came across some writing you did on Doe versus McKesson, which is a case I was not familiar with but is one that has some really interesting parallels with the topic at hand. So to bring yeah. the listener up to speed, can you just talk about what Doe versus McKesson is about?
0: Doe versus McKesson is, is one of the most bizarre federal court suits I've seen in 30 years of teaching this stuff, 10 years of, of full-time journalism about it. And it, it arises out of a protest that was held in 2016 in the middle of Black Lives Matter, The police in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, shot and killed a man named Alton Sterling during the course of an arrest. And that was on, I believe, July 5th, 2016. And on July 9th, uh, a demonstration was held in front of the police department by people organizing under the banner of Black Lives Matter of of the killing. And the police responded to what was a fairly peaceful march with a complete militarized presence. You know, shields, rifles, all kinds of supposedly non-lethal weapons. And there's an actually a kind of iconic photograph that comes out of that particular protest that probably uh, people have seen. And that is this picture of an absolutely stunning African-American woman who is dressed in a kind of beautiful flowing outfit. She looks like she's some kind of dancer or something who just stands her ground as a policeman with a riot shield and armor and and a baton advances on her and she's just not going anywhere and the guy stops and this picture is caught and went all over the world. So people may, may remember the protest from that. Now the, the police did advance on the protesters. The event turned very unruly uh, and someone hit police officer Doe with a stone or a, a rock or something of that sort. At least that's the allegation, because we've never gotten to trial about this. Now, at exactly this same time, a lawyer named Larry Klayman has sued, among other things, Hillary Clinton for Benghazi, sued Obama saying he was from Kenya. He sued his own mother because he wanted her to pay her grandmother's health expenses. He's kind of litigious and a little out there. And he came up with this idea that (laughs) we could just sue Black Lives Matter for any act of violence, and that theory was imported by Officer Doe's lawyers to file suit against DeRay McKesson, and your viewers may have heard his name. He is a private individual from Baltimore, Maryland, who has given over his entire time and energy to the Black Lives Matter movement, and McKesson spoke at the rally and so forth. Well, he gets slapped with a federal court lawsuit saying that he is responsible for Officer Doe's injuries because he was, quote, negligent by having a protest. And he should have known the protest would get violent, and he should have known that someone would throw a rock and people would be hurt. And therefore, he needs to pay significant amounts of money to Officer Doe. And this is, at that moment... That was a fringe theory. That was Larry Klayman. You know, that was UFOs ate my homework. <laughs> and one of the my favorite things in the opinion is he says, you know, one of the defendants in this is hashtag Black Lives Matter. And there's no federal court jurisdiction over a hashtag. So that's dismissed. But he dismissed the charge against uh, Mr. McKesson. Also, just saying you haven't alleged that he did anything. The fact that he led a, a rally or that he made a speech or that he criticized the police, these things don't give rise to liability for the actions of a third party, and you haven't shown any connection between him and those actions. So at that point, the case goes up to the Fifth Circuit, and that's when we enter the, the, the kind of Bermuda Triangle of American law.
1: Y- yes, absolutely. Now, first off, I want the listener to note, they sued a hashtag. So yes. the hashtag was one of the defendants, correct? Officially. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. So keep that in mind. If you ever use a hashtag, things get weird when they get to the fifth circuit. Okay. So it gets to the fifth circuit and they overturn the dismissal. And what were the grounds for that?
0: Well, you know, this is, this is one of the most bizarre sequences of litigation I've ever seen, because the appeal comes to the Fifth Circuit very soon after the dismissal in 2017, and it disappears. This is why I call it the Bermuda Triangle. The court accepts the briefs and does nothing for two years. There's no response. They don't order oral argument. They don't order further briefing on on Mm -hmm. questions they have. No one knows what's going on. And then suddenly in 2019, you know, with no warning, just like thunder in a clear blue sky, this bizarre opinion comes down by three very conservative judges. And it reinstates the cause of action and says, well, under the common law of negligence, you know, according to this, McKesson actually had something to do with this demonstration. And therefore, we don't see any reason why he shouldn't be liable. And they blow past the precedence and simply put this one sentence, in, the First Amendment does not protect violence. Now, you know what's striking about that, of course, is there was no allegation of any violent behavior by McKesson. He and a number of the demonstrators had been arrested for unlawfully being present in the street. But the police had dismissed all the charges, so there was no criminal allegation against him that stood up or anything else. And suddenly, they remand the case to federal district court and say, have a jury trial and see whether we can bankrupt Mr. McKesson for what he did. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So the case goes on, you know, gets
1: weirder. In my notes on the section of the Fifth Circuit, the only question I had was WTF.
0: I think they need a writ of that, you know, served on them because the ACLU of Louisiana immediately filed uh, a petition for rehearing uh, with suggestion for rehearing in bank. You know, they never were allowed to, to make an oral argument. So they asked for that. And sometime later, these three highly conservative judges issued an order, again, without oral argument, saying rehearing is granted in front of us. And we affirm, we agree with ourselves, and therefore you lose. So, twice now, the, the, the panel refused to hear oral argument or, or ask for special briefing on this
1: issue. Is um, that common for a court to issue a ruling, reaffirming its own ruling before that ruling is contested?
0: Uh, well, you know, petition for rehearing is granted sometimes, you know, it's a, it's a yeah.
1: procedural
0: thing. But usually, in my experience, it's because the, the panel granting rehearing says, geez, we screwed up. There was something we needed to consider. We need to let the parties brief an issue that we didn't really focus on or something like that. But to simply, you know, allow rehearing and say... Oh, you want some rehearing? I'll give you rehearing. Okay, I rehear you. No, you lose. Right? I mean, that's yeah. it's just <laughs> it. It's just flip it, right? As far as I'm concerned, with somebody's rights. Do you want me to go on because we're still sailing deeper into the
1: Bermuda Triangle? We're oh, not finished please. yet. Let's let's go in there. Let's go okay. take me into the heart of darkness.
0: Well, now, you know, I and a number of other commentators are are sort of going insane at this point. Like, what do you mm-hmm. th- people think you're doing? The case is uh, pending. There's a petition filed for rehearing in bank. The defendant's saying, no, you didn't get it. We really want somebody to look at this case. Not We weren't asking you if you thought you were right. And out of a clear blue sky, I think it was December 19th of 2019, Judge Don Willett, who is a Trump appointee on the panel that had agreed with itself twice, yes. issues a, a new opinion. And he basically says, you know what? I wasn't thinking straight. I I look at the precedents and this is crazy. McKesson, of course, McKesson ought to. What are we doing? So he issues a new opinion. It was a three to zero decision. Now it's a two to one decision. And the case goes further up for in-bank review and the judge's Basically, the votes line up in such a way that that a majority of the judges, by one, disagree with the opinion. And if that's the case, in bank review, they should vacate the opinion below and remand it for a new hearing. But one judge, another Trump judge, Judge Ho, cleverly does this bank shot where he says, yes, the opinion below is wrong, but not for first amendment reasons. There's no first amendment right to do any of this protesting nonsense, but because I'm not sure Louisiana tort law allows a cause of action by a police officer. There's something called the, the helper doctrine that says police can't sue people who, you know, they they've put themselves in the position of being out there and taking risks and they can't sue people when that goes wrong. Now, it's not clear whether Louisiana law provides for this, And I'm going to go right out on a limb here, if that's okay. I'm going to say that this was a cynical ploy by one of the most lawless judges I've ever seen on the bench to preserve that precedent, to preserve the idea that, yes, you can sue anyone who speaks at a demonstration while not permitting any further review of it. Because, you know, the case has now been remanded to district court to find out what Louisiana tort law is.
1: I I don't mean to cut you off there. So no, by all means. So just to make sure Judge Ho limits the right to freely assemble. Yeah. And limits the right for police officers to sue someone for damages incurred on the job at the same time and then sends it back to Louisiana, to to the Louisiana District Court. Now, this whole time, McKesson is bearing the cost of representation
0: Yeah, and he's got the ACLU on his side. But, you know, this kind of litigation, as we know, going all the way back to New York Times versus Sullivan, it's a very powerful weapon against individuals who are involved in protest against the government because it ties up your assets. You can't necessarily plan your your financial future or where you're going to be or anything else. And the ACLU is representing McKesson. They asked the Supreme Court to step in. And just to be clear... There is a precedent from the 1980s that is directly on point. It is precisely the same case that says the First Amendment prohibits this kind of lawsuit. They should never be allowed.
1: And this so is NAACP the, versus Claiborne, correct? Claiborne Hardware, yeah, which we can get into if you want to. But
0: yeah. uh, this this goes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court reverses the the Fifth Circuit, but it does so by saying, well, we don't know about this Louisiana tort law. Let's Let's find out about that. And they said, we want the lower court to ask the Louisiana state Supreme Court whether there is this liability doctrine or not. So that's where the case is. Nobody knows. It's, it's still in the Bermuda Triangle. The Louisiana State Supreme Court has accepted it. They did last summer for a certification and they haven't issued an opinion yet. But the, the precedent is still on the books uh, yeah. in the Fifth Circuit, which I think was Judge Ho's aim. Judge Ho is someone who said police officers ought to be absolutely immune from suit, no matter how brutal they are, because they protect us. It's one of the most extreme positions I've ever seen a judge take. I think he wants Go to on. preserve that the chance for these claimant style lawsuits, you know, down
1: the road. Well, and this is kind. Of, this is what concerned me as I was looking at the law. And again, I'll preface what I'm going to say with the idea that I'm going to be talking about Donald Trump, Unite the Right, the NAACP, and the Black Lives Matter movement, all in the you same bet. sentence. Yeah. I'm not conflating any of them. By any means, I'm just using them all because they're all relevant to this case. But again, kind of getting back to the use of civil suits, it does seem to be a way to do an end run around the First Amendment.
0: Well, I I think it has been an end run around the First Amendment for, you know, 50 years in the New York Times versus Sullivan. They tried to get around the First Amendment and shut down news coverage of Southern segregation and the civil rights movement by filing a tort suit against out-of-state media, and the Supreme Court, you know, shut that down. In Claiborne Hardware, they they try to do the same thing, using this theory that if you organize a protest, you're liable for any damages that that come from it. Now they're doing it with this. Tort tort judgments are very, very serious things for ordinary people. If you think about the right to protest and the right peaceably to assemble, to redress uh, grievances... These things are organized by just ordinary folks. That's where Black Lives Matter came from. I actually remember the the night that Black Lives Matter came into existence because I was on the street and people were just distraught. Nobody knew exactly what to do, what was going on. This was in, in the District of Columbia. And this is how protest happens. This is how social change happens. And there has been a systematic attempt to target people who organize these protests and intimidate them with tort judgments. So we see for example state legislatures passing all kinds of protester liability bills all over the country saying that, you know, anyone who organizes a protest in which someone resists the police will be liable for huge amounts of money. And what that means is that if you or I want to organize a protest or we just want to go out in the street and say this is wrong, We have to worry that either a proud boy in the crowd will start a fight or that an undercover cop will do it. And I'm old enough to remember the 60s and the anti-war movement. And I was, as a reporter, I was in the streets a lot at that time. And there's no one who seriously questions that the local police had undercover officers in those crowds and that very often they would initiate the violence. So from now on, if that happens, you have to sell your house. And the right to peaceable assembly is taking a terrible beating in the yes. states right now.
1: So I want to contrast this with the Unite the Right rally, because the, the people suing the organizers of the rally were recently awarded millions of dollars. 20, 26 million. Yeah. 26 million. Yeah. So yeah. W- what's the difference in the claims?
0: There's a lot of differences, I will say at the outset that a lawsuit like the Charlottesville lawsuit is required to be very precise. There's a, a doctrine that says, first, that when your a lawsuit impinges First Amendment rights, you must use extraordinary precision in laying out your claims. Now, here's the difference, okay? The Louisiana case was brought under basically, you can't say this about Louisiana, but basically it was common law. It's like, you know, you're just negligent. So it's the same claim that you would make against someone who ran into your car, ran through a stop sign. There's no law covering this specific conduct. In the Charlottesville case, this was a federal case brought under an 1871 law called the Ku Klux Klan Act Mm -hmm. that was passed and has been upheld specifically for the purpose of closing down violent terrorist groups that go uh, around and terrorize people in their homes or amass themselves at the polls or at courthouses or other places to intimidate other people from exercising their First Amendment rights. So there's a lot more case law. about it. You can see that the, the three levels of courts have tried to figure out what is this claimant thing about? We, we can't figure out what you're talking about. Please tell us. It's very clear what a, a KKK act, action looks like. The second thing is the plaintiffs in the Charlottesville case didn't run into court and immediately just sue everybody they could think of and say, you know, some of us got hurt and you're all responsible. I would encourage your listeners to get hold of the complaint in that case and read it. This is the investigation that took place before the case was launched, before any court ordered discovery was launched. It's 100 plus pages long of highly detailed accounts of the ways in which, as the plaintiffs allege. These named defendants conspired together and planned. You know, there's no allegation that McKesson did any of this. They conspired together for weeks in advance. They planned. They said, here's how, you know, we need these weapons. We need these people to be present. We need, you know, to be ready to crack some skulls, right? All of this is there in the record in emails and social media posts and and affidavits by people who were present so in order to survive a, a motion to dismiss, they had a very specific statute that they were operating under, and they had very strong evidence that they had the facts behind that case. Now, you went through a long period of discovery after that, and even more of this stuff came up. And it was what, what, what was seen as conspiracy. And the First Amendment doesn't really strongly protect conspiracy to commit violent acts. Uh, And if there had been any evidence that DeRay McKesson had been conspiring with people and saying, let's go down to, to the Baton Rouge Police Department and let's goad the police into violent response and then let's make sure our people throw rocks, this would be a very different case. But that is what was shown to a jury's satisfaction in the Charlottesville case. So I think everyone in that case was very aware that First Amendment rights could be impacted. And yes. it was an extraordinary piece of litigation in the way that they apparently have avoided that.
1: I asked that question with some foreknowledge of the case uh, against the Unite the mm. Right rally. And I would encourage anyone to look into sort of the evidence that was compiled. The, the short version, for those of you who don't want to, is those organizers could not have been any dumber about how they approach this. They have Discord servers, they have text messages. I mean, anywhere they could put in writing that their intent was to go down there and stir up violence. Yes. They wrote it anywhere. Yeah. You know? And I'm sure they I'm sure they missed a spot too. I'm sure the investigators missed a spot. So and you said this at the beginning of our conversation and I want to get back to this because you mentioned how when Black Lives Matter In Louisiana moved on that police station, how they were met with a very firm armed response. And Mm -hmm. I couldn't help but think about the attack on the Capitol and Mm -hmm. how this throng of protesters was met by a handful of Capitol police officers with no backup. Mm -hmm. And how do I put this? Do you feel that if it's BLM, that they are going to be more likely to incur suits like this because it is more likely that they are going to be met with a very strong armed response than, let's be real, a large group of white people.
0: I think it's really important, really important, to see this case in the context of the history of black-white relations in this country and the history of the Civil Rights Movement because the fact of the matter is what's being fought about in the Black Lives Matter demonstrations is precisely the same thing that was fought about during the Civil Rights Movement. You know, one of the things that set off the Selma March was that police hunted down a a young protester and shot him to death inside a restaurant. And that is one of the reasons they decided they had to march over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Claiborne Hardware, the precedent that I discussed earlier, it's not just similar to the McKesson case, it's the same damn case. The protest at Port Gibson, Mississippi, arises because on the night after Martin Luther King's uh, assassination, a police officer shot and killed a young man named Roosevelt Jackson in, in Port Gibson.
1: And we, should, we should just elaborate on this. So in uh, NAACP versus Claiborne, which, we, which we've been talking about, uh, a group of shop owners in Mississippi actually sued the NAACP for losses mm-hmm. during a boycott of their businesses. Right. And there, there was even an instance where Charlie Evers of the NAACP said something to the effect of, if any of you use these racist stores, we're going to break your neck.
0: Break your damn and, neck,
1: yeah. Yeah, break your damn neck. And that yeah. I was surprised. That was still protected. That was still protected. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, here's the point, right? There, there are legal differences between conspiring to intentionally create violence and what's called incitement. And that is standing up in front of a crowd and saying things that get people riled up. Uh, Incitement is not protected, but it is defined very narrowly in order to protect First Amendment rights. And so Charlie Evers said, if any of you go in and shop in them racist stores, we won't break your damn neck. But he didn't say to the crowd, go break some necks. Now, you know, those people been shopping, go get them. And that's what incitement is. And just to give you an example of how that distinction plays out, Donald Trump was sued for a Louisville rally he held in 2016 at which a group of silent, nonviolent protesters were beaten up after he pointed at them and says, get them out of here. And the court held, well, he's not inciting because he didn't say do it by violent means. You know, he said, don't hurt them or, you know, something like that. It wasn't incitement. So DeRay McKesson... I don't even know any specific words he's supposed to have used that incited. And just going back to your background, there's a part of the country, and indeed much of the country, where protest by black people is viewed as terrifying. And a lot of those places are where slave revolt was so terribly, terribly feared during the years before the Civil War. And this is the same mentality. Uh, You know, when Judge Ho says, the police protect us, that's what he's talking about. It's really scary. Every now and then I, I ask myself, you know, I've been alive a long time. I was alive during the civil rights movement. I covered some of the late parts of it as a journalist. And I think, what has changed? Has anything changed? And I I think, you know, maybe the answer is yes. But if so, there's people out there with a lot of power who want to change it back.
1: Mm. Well, I, I'd asked you earlier, too about the sh- use of force in, in protests that are predominantly black versus protests that are predominantly white, yeah, and, and the, the likelihood that that would lead to some instance of violence that would invoke a civil suit. The, the second question I have for you is just, is the law applied evenly, or is there a racial gap in how that law is applied irrespective of law enforcement presence? Oh, I don't think
0: there's any question that it's applied uh, unevenly. I mean, I I think one of the things that radicalized me, and I'm a little old to get radicalized, but (laughs) I think probably impacted a lot of people the same way, was, you know, and this is just sitting in in my living room watching TV, but when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, black people in Ferguson were outraged the way you would be, the way people were after George Floyd and so forth. They organized a march on City Hall. Well, if you go back and look at the images from those reports, you have never seen a hostile militarized response like what they were met with. They were on their way to City Hall to protest the conduct of city government, fully protected by the First Amendment. And they were met like an invading army and they were gassed and, you know, beatings broke out. And yeah, everything turns violent When, when you prepare for violence and you treat peaceful protesters as violent, dangerous people, that's going to happen. You know, there's ways to police demonstrations that don't involve either letting people do whatever they want or, you know, crushing them. And I can get into Graham, North Carolina if you want to, but I think that illustrates what we're talking about.
1: Getting back to something we talked about earlier, which is, you know, it seems like in the case of McKesson, you have a series of conservative courts effectively ruling against the First Amendment. Does that have the potential to turn around, though, and bite their own pet causes? Because, again, I'm thinking about, you know, the case of of Donald Trump egging on people at his rally. Or even the, you know, again, the attack on the Capitol. I mean, Rudy Giuliani said trial by combat. Mo Brooks said let's go up there and kick some ass. I mean, under that... Precedent, I would imagine, all of these people are liable for well, damages if the laws applied equally.
0: You know, there's a, there's a couple of points here. One is just notice how mm-hmm. very hard it is in general to make these kind of claims, and that Charlottesville case illustrates that. that. I've never seen lawyering like what was done in that case. It was brilliant, but it mm-hmm. occupied some very important lawyers lives for for a year and a half you know just to get the the case going the other thing is that judging is a very emotional business in the end you know if you've ever been on the inside watched how courts operate you see that the judges receive the facts of the case and they form an attitude of what is at stake And the attitude among a lot of conservatives seems to be that America is under threat and that what is at stake is our very way of life. And, you know, the exterior critique of that is that what they perceive as a threat to America is actually a threat to a certain white supremacist vision of America. And that is under threat. But what that means is, you know, that, that... People's rights are unequally apportioned by race. I do think that when, again, you can go, I mean, to my my mind, the index case is what happened in Graham, North Carolina, a few days before the the presidential election in 2020, when a coalition of civil rights groups obtained a legal permit to march to the courthouse where voting was going on so their members could vote. This was a march, a legal march with a permit to go to exercise that civic right. And when they got near the courthouse, they were suddenly attacked by the police with with uh, rubber bullets, with tasers, with gas, with with batons. This is on on film. And the the reason that was given by the police afterwards was that they were using a sound system that hadn't been approved. And that for doing that, American citizens who were on their way to vote, could be brutalized and arrested and made into criminals. And I think that having grown up in the South, there are people who always thought that all of this voting by black people was, there was something wrong about it. That it almost ruined the South in reconstruction, people say. Now they're coming back and it's all corrupt. And I think that that emotional mindset certainly affects the police. It certainly affects lawyers like Larry Clayman and, and the attorney for Officer Doe. They really don't believe black people have the same rights as white people. They wouldn't put it that way, and I'm sure they have all kinds of black friends, and they think, you know, that they don't have the mythical racist bone and so forth. But that's the way it shakes out every time.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. This podcast grows by word of mouth. I also have some links to Garrett's other works on ydhty.com. Just click on where it says Episodes in the upper right-hand corner, and ye shall find... Now, the thing I found most interesting about this conversation is that it gets back to the states and state law. And if you remember from the last episode with John Vile, it was the states that passed criminal syndicalism laws to suppress the activities of leftist political parties at the start of the Red Scare. And many of the suits that came up around these laws ultimately gave us the relatively ironclad protection of free speech we have today. And In this conversation with Garrett, the states are indeed using new and existing tort law to effectively bankrupt those who might organize protests, which effectively suppresses free speech for fear of financial ruin. And it's a question mark this time as to how the Supreme Court's going to rule, as the ruling on McKesson was simply to kick it back to the state to determine if their law was adequately applied. And we also know from last week's episode that there are periods of time where the court doesn't always get it right, and we may just be in one of those periods. Either way, I feel like there should be some sort of federal standard to ensure states don't continue to use this as a lever to suppress organizations they don't like, and I would be interested in your thoughts, so please feel free to email me. My email is heydan, that's H-E-Y as in hey, D-A-N is in my name, at ydhty.com, Y is in you, D is in don't, H is in have, and you can get the rest.com. I would love to hear from you. As always, music is courtesy of Tech. YDHTY's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next This is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.